Hello and welcome to the ISP podcast Falcons on Air. I am your host Emily. I'm Maya. And I'm Sophia. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Perry. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Dr. Perry, we know that you have a very impressive resume. You've gone to college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If if you need to re-edit things, my suggestion is to just keep going and jump back to the start of the sentence. Yes. And we can, I mean, I'm imagining this can be edited later, right? Yes. yes. Okay, yes. good. All right. We're not live on the, the mic. <laughs> We're not live on the air. All no. is good. So we know that you have a very impressive resume, and we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your English PhD, what you studied in college, and how you chose to pursue it. Okay. So I wound up, um, in the PhD program because I'd gone to graduate school for a Master of Fine Arts in fiction writing because I like to make things up. I like to make things, but I also like to make things up. So fiction writing it was, and towards the end of that program, I discovered that, I mean, discovered it had existed, the word text and textile have the same origin in texere, the Latin word for to weave. And English is full of all kinds of connections between text, textile, women's work, um, the construction of femininity, and there are all of these myths in the Western classical tradition, uh, but there are also all of these figures of speech in English, like you weave a tangled web, or it's something as a complete fabrication, or a tissue of lies. And then there are stories like Arachne and Ariadne and Philomela and Penelope. And, I mean, you can, you can look through classical mythology. You can look through fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty, Rumpelstiltskin. There are a lot of moments where spinning, weaving, knitting, sewing, those kinds are identified as women's work, and they are also connected with deception and femininity. So I got interested in this and thought I want to do more with it. And there was there were some interesting scholars in the graduate program where I was at the time, and I thought, well, I suppose I could get a PhD. <laughs> and so, um, well, the MFA um, is itself a terminal degree, so to continue on, I just had to take the master's comprehensive exam for English literature, and if I passed that, I could be admitted into the PhD as if I had a regular Master of Arts in Literature, and not just, you know, the wacky fiction writing thing. <laughs> so, um, so yes, so I wound up in the PhD program, and I continued to look at text and textile while, while knitting things, while making things, um, mostly knitting at that point, but I had done, like, weaving and sewing when I was, when I was younger. And so that that continued in my private life as a way of distracting myself from, from graduate school work. But then um, in grad school, I wound up looking particularly at the work of the novelist Virginia Woolf. And so I was looking at textile as material method and metaphor in Virginia Woolf's fiction. So looking at 
where she talks about women and textiles. So there's Mrs. Dalloway mending a skirt. There's Mrs. Ramsey knitting a sock. There's the moment where in A Room of One's Own where she talks about fiction is a web attached ever so lightly, perhaps, but attached to life at its corners. And so she's, she keeps using these, these metaphors and these connections and then began looking at could I, could I think about weaving and mending and textile work as a method of, of writing for her and then also as a metaphor and what could it stand for. And that led me deep into all kinds of post-structuralist fe- French feminist theorists <laughs> and things like that, which I use in my everyday life all the time. No, I actually use them in conversations with people like my mother, who's um, a visual artist. And so, you know, right now she's working on a piece that has to do with, um, it's called Words Matter. And so it um, is about the materiality of language. But we got talking about the idea of matter and the connection with mater, Latin mother, matrix, which is Latin for womb. Um, and so you can think of all of those interesting intersections. And then um, she was, we were laughing about Freud and, <laughs> and what Freud has to say about, about women and, um, and about weaving and about women's, and that, the idea of weaving pubic hair as a way to cover women's essential lack, <laughs> and that pubic that so that women the Dora's Dora's fascination with her reticule had to do with again with this idea of weaving and women's you know utter lack and our upset about the fact that we are we are lacking in that way. <laughs> so anyhow, my mother who is eighty eight, um, almost eighty nine, and still a working artist, and so. I have these wonderful, enlightening, crazy conversations with her about projects and and uh, theory and stuff. So that's um, a long-winded way of talking about stuff I did with my PhD. So um, if I'm not mistaken, you went from getting your doctorate in English and uh, your master's in fine art to working at Google? Well, a little roundabout ways of doing it. First, um, I did that. Then I actually worked in community organizing for a while in my neighborhood in Pittsburgh. We had made one move for my career when we'd moved out to move from Pittsburgh out to Iowa um, for me to teach at the college level. We made the next move for my husband's career. He was interested in urban community organizing. There wasn't a tiny whole lot of that in small town Iowa. So we moved back to Pittsburgh. And we've done a lot of that kind of tag team back and forth where one of us is more the parent at home and the other person is is pursuing a, a career next step. And so I was back in Pittsburgh and was um, getting involved in a local community development organization. So got um, interested in community organizing, then wound up working for a girls' school where... Um, and also got working with a startup independent school for at-risk kids um, in urban Pittsburgh. So that kind of, you can see the interlocking of the community organizing, um, economic justice work, and the teaching, teaching and learning piece. And one of the things that, um, that I could do to help them was to help them develop a technology plan for this startup school. And 
um, partly because I'm a curious person and I crashed my computer a whole lot because I was trying to do things that it wouldn't do yet. And so got good at explaining how you might use a computer in the humanities and teaching. So as a humanist, I could help fellow humanists find ways to use this tool in the classroom. So I began doing that kind of work and then kind of accidentally on purpose discovered um, programming. And it's like, oh, oh, this is fun. You know, I mean, I thought this was, and I'm sorry to stereotype here, but that this was the realm of young men with poor social skills living in their parents, <laughs> living in their parents' basement um, and doing brilliant things with ones and zeros that didn't have much application in real life. And that, you know, it was fine if you were into video games and, um, you know, and robotics maybe, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. And suddenly I discovered that there were all these artists who were using programming um, coming out of MIT, making these tools. So I began playing with that, began be teaching students how through Scratch or through this programming language called Processing out of MIT, they could use programming to make art. And then along came the possibility of um, Google was advertising, looking for um, computer science teachers from middle school and high school from across the country to teach in a, um, a pilot summer camp program. And I thought, well, one of the Google offices was based in Pittsburgh, so I thought, well... Um, you know, they wouldn't have to relocate because they were saying, oh, we'll relocate you, we'll cover everything, whatever, um, and you can come and teach in this program if you get accepted. And I thought, well, that would be an advantage for them. I would be cheap because I'd be, you know, so I don't have a huge amount of experience, lots of curiosity, and um, I've mostly been in middle school. And, yeah, I put in the application and then kind of forgot about it. Nothing happens, nothing happens. A couple months later, um, it's spring break, and I'm sitting on my sofa, and my phone rings, and I pick it up, and, hi, this is Patty from Google. Okay, cue wide open mouth, hand gestures to hush kids and family in the background because it's spring break and it's chaos, and it turns out that um, they did have an opening. They were looking for someone who... Um, could spend five weeks in Cambridge, Massachusetts as a as sort of a second teacher to a lead teacher um, for this summer program for, the idea was to take kids who were rising ninth graders who had strong math and science skills but little exposure to computer science and plunge them into a really rich environment full of computer science discovery and sort of re help them imagine what the field might be like and also imagine themselves into the pipeline for that. And so, yes, so I spent an amazing summer working for Google. Uh, the following summer, I wound up being the person who acted as the liaison between the teachers that, so I got to help hire the teachers for the program, help be their supervisor, and also sort of translate teachers' expectations to Google and translate Google's expectations to teachers because they're very different, the startup high-tech world and how they expect people to operate and U.S., generally speaking, public school, high-performing high schools have very different cultures in terms of when it's okay to show initiative, when it isn't, do you have to ask first before you do something what things do you need to ask about? What things, you know, so people had very different kinds of expectations. And so I was busy translating cultures 
back and forth between them and getting exposed to incredibly, incredible teachers, all right? So, I mean, because if you call up and say, you know, hi, this is Liz, I'm calling from Google, particularly in the early, like, 2010s, 2011, 2012, people's, you know, people stop everything and listen <laughs> and are interested in helping out. And so, yes, so I got to work inside different Google offices across the country um, helping with this summer program, which the first iteration was five weeks, the second iteration was three weeks, then another year we did an online version of it. So the relationship continued over time. Um, since that time, probably about seven or eight years ago, most first of all, the program itself got sunsetted or rolled into other programs they do to encourage computer science education. And then the person who was the lead Googler running it, um, that's what they call themselves, or did then, I'm dating myself perhaps. Anyway, um, our, our project lead left Google in order to do, do other work, and so um, my direct Google connection evaporated. So I still have people I work people I worked with, who I worked with who worked with other people you know I have those kinds of connections there sort of second degree connections but there's nobody I can just call up and say hey <laughs> we're doing this cool thing would you like to know more about it can you help us with it so that 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 is that is no longer but I learned a whole lot so after that experience is that what got you started teaching internationally no, actually what started me teaching internationally was a whole different thing, which is that I went to Nishimachi International School um, as a sixth grader because my father's a college professor and we were in Japan for the year and so we all went to international school. And for a little kid from Minnesota in the upper Midwest of the United States from a very small college town, very homogenous place, to suddenly be in a world capital like Tokyo um, at a time when there were lots of really interesting events going on in the world just completely shifted my view of the world on its axis. Suddenly I was looking at the U.S. from the outside while still being you know, very connected to it and was immersed in a different culture and in very engaged by that and had international classmates, which was incredible. So that made me hope that someday I could work things in my life so that I could return to an environment like that. And it didn't, you know, life goes on, some things happen, some things don't happen, and you think, okay, well, that might be a maybe someday. And then one day along comes a moment at my school where it looks as if they're running out of budget for my position because I was mostly working with faculty and not teaching. And so I went on the job market and this amazing job came up in London. And I told my family, this isn't ever going to happen, but it's fun to imagine. And then I got the phone call and we went to London for a year, which turned into two years, which turned into, well, what if we, what if we stayed international for a while? What about that? And then an amazing job came up in Prague and here I am. So... Wow. <laughs> um, so can you tell us more about your passion for making your own clothes? Like, how do you do it, and how long have you been doing it for? Well, I've been sewing since I was a little kid, you know, doll clothes and hobby stuff. 
And I'm of a generation where we were required to take home economics, which was half, which was a semester of cooking and then a semester of sewing. And that was for three years in junior high school, which is basically middle school. It was grades seven, eight, and nine. Okay. So I had a year and a half of sewing training. Now this was I'm kind of the lat. My, by the time my sisters came along, the whole program was much more flexible and had much more choice. Um, when I was in it, um, there weren't really any interesting shop making, um, like carpentry and and electronics kinds of choices for girls. And there was a course for boys called Bachelor Living because the only reason you would need, if you were a boy, <laughs> to sew or cook was because you were no longer living with your mom. And you were not married. So that was why you would need to know these things. Yeah. So again, the world has changed, which is good. Um, but I think it is hard that not everybody gets to learn how to sew because it is a lot of fun because you're taking something that's essentially a, a two-dimensional plane and you're wrapping it around into three dimensions and in the meantime, you know, getting to make and wear whatever you'd like. So those skills... I think when my kids were little, those came out in making weird Halloween costumes for them. You know, somebody needed to be a satellite. Somebody needed to be some kind of alien with 11 eyes. And, you know, wanting to make costumes that people could take on and off that could live in the dress-up box afterwards, you know, rather than than just be a one-time stapled-together thing. Um, But actually, so I would get out the sewing machine and sew that. But sewing wasn't really happening at that point. Knitting was easier because I could pick it up and put it down. Sewing, you kind of need to like take over a big flat space like the dining room table or um, the floor of a room or whatever to spread things out. And that's not super practical when you have a lot of people coming and going. And then came lockdown. And suddenly, you know, there I was. I was teaching at the dining room table, so I had all kinds of little electronics bits and bobs, but I also got out the sewing machine and began, you know, and I had been, you know, making the occasional summer dress just for fun um, over the past few years, but then I just began to, like, this is a really lovely, relaxing thing that I can do that doesn't, um, that's not intellectual, right? I don't have to think about ideas. The decisions I'm making are much more decisions that you make while crafting or aesthetic decisions and not um, decisions that have profound philosophical consequences, right? You know, button placement is, I mean, you can argue that the fact that women put the buttons on one side and men tend to put them on the other, I mean, maybe that's gendered, maybe there's weird patriarchal something or other history to it, but mostly it's a matter of choice, right? Um, and put your put your buttons anywhere you want and enjoy your shirt. So, so yeah, so I began making stuff. And then the other thing is it was, you know, we increasingly were worried about fast fashion and the incredible environmental impact of it, but also the impact on the lives of the people who make super cheap clothing. And I thought, well, if I make my clothing, then I know the educational opportunities that the person who made my clothing had because they're mine. And I know that that person has, you know, the meals they need and the roof over their head and meaningful work and um, and so on. So that's something within my control. So making and mending clothing is, it's political and it's also just 
fun. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're very welcome. This was quite the ramble, but (laughs) (laughs) happy to talk with any about it anyone about any of it and one of the wonderful things about being in the idea lab is that we have all these tools for making um and so anyone who is interested like here's my little ad pitch but <laughs> but no seriously if someone wants it's not hard to learn how to use a sewing machine is it maya no it's all easy. all right and it's not hard to the kind of programming that we do to make cool things interactive not hard at all so yeah come and have a play come ask questions Cool. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.